when I got my license, she didn't get her license. She almost took her test, but then she kind of chickened out. And that was the closest that she would ever come to getting her driver's license. It's like she couldn't see herself as an independent driver. Now, it's just a driver's license. She made it through life great. But what about when a change is something that's much, much bigger? Like, would you change if not changing meant you could die? Because this guy named Richard, he started smoking as a teenager. And he smoked all the way through his 20s and 30s. He smoked as much as three packs a day. After he suffered his first heart attack at age 37, he quit for a little bit. But then he kind of took it back up. He suffered his second heart attack at age 43. And then he suffered his third heart attack at age 47. At which time he had a, I got to get this right, quadruple coronary artery bypass surgery at age 47. Now, you'd think that he would, like, turn into this healthy person, have a healthy lifestyle. No, Richard resumed a lifestyle that worsened his heart condition. I mean, he didn't get much exercise. He gained 40 pounds. He continued working as a powerful executive, which subjected him to heavy stress and frequent crises. But he was lucky. His grafts lasted a dozen years. Until one day at 59, when he had his fourth heart attack. He was rushed to the hospital at 4.30 in the morning. He he underwent another operation where they put a steel stint in his heart for the blood to flow, but this clogged within three months. The artery was 90% blocked. And then three months after that, the doctors found an irregular heartbeat, so they installed a pacemaker to shock his heart back into a steady rhythm. And then, and then, he decided to sort of pursue a healthier lifestyle. I mean, by that, it helped that he was a top executive so that he could literally have personal chefs prepare good food for him. And he literally had personal assistants that would haul his heavy equipment, his exercise machines, so that he could get his daily 30-minute exercise routine worked in, usually on his personal jet where he would fly around the world for his job. And you'd think at 59 and a half or so, if he would, and, and being independently wealthy, he could easily afford to retire you know, hunt fish and relax, but he decided to continue to work, which his job became increasingly stressful. You might know this person. He uh, doesn't usually go by Richard. He goes by Dick, and his last name's Cheney. And he served on, you know, among other things, the White House Chief of Staff, Secretary of Defense, and the Vice President of the United States during a time of intense crisis. Now, there's a guy named Alan Deutschman who picked Cheney's story to open his book called Change or Die, which, as you can imagine, might be about changing or failing to change. And I admit I picked up the book because of the great title. It's pretty compelling when you hear Change or Die. But he says that he singled out Cheney from the 62 million, and at the time of the book, it was 62 million. Now it's 82 million Americans who suffer from heart disease. 
Because number one, most of us will recognize Cheney's name. If you don't, you can raise your hand after. We'll talk to you about him. And number two, because you recognize his name and because he was a controversial political figure during a time of intense crisis in America, there's some kind of gut-level response that we have to him. I mean, when, we were, when I was telling the story, I, I'm guessing that you were listening to Richard and the heart condition. And so your mind framed the conversation around health and health care. Am I right? But after I said his name, then all of a sudden the conversation was now framed around politics and what our views are about politics, which might have totally changed the story. And, and what this guy says is that this gut-level emotional reaction is our belief system. If, you're, if you want to be fancy or smart, you can call it a conceptual framework. But it's our belief system. It's the things that we would say, I just feel it in my guts. I can't really explain it. It's so intertwined in my brain, in my spiritual and my emotional and my mental, that I just feel it or I just believe it. These are incredibly hard things to change. Uh, this guy, Deutschman, would say that that because we so hold so tightly, we actually need three different components to make change happen. Number one, we need the right person coaching us, positive relationships. Number two, we need to have the right information being told to us, to repeat to us. But three, we need to change our belief systems. Now, there's a point to this long introduction, I promise. Because this might explain why Dick Cheney, and my grandma for that matter, had plenty of people coaching them, good relationships, and they had plenty of good information about why they should make the next step, take the next step, make the right choice. But my grandma continued in a, you know, semi-productive cycle, life cycle, and Jig Cheney just continued an unhealthy life cycle. They literally or essentially were paralyzed to take the needed step to come back fully. Now think about that in your own life. I mean, when have you been paralyzed to make a decision? Paralyzed to change. Paralyzed to take the next step. And it's not, I bet, that you needed better people around you to encourage you. And it's not that you needed better um, information to help you change. It's that you couldn't change the way you saw yourself. Because that's what it takes to change the belief system. Better information and positive people will not get us there. But I believe if we really put this in the lens of a God view, then it's not really changing us doing the work, as Deutschman would say, of changing ourselves, changing our beliefs. It's letting us see how God sees. And when we see as God sees... I believe we'll do as God desires. So let's take a look at Exodus here and see if this is actually a case. So I'm in Exodus 19. If you need a Bible, you can go to the back and grab one. If you have one or want to look at your phone, you can follow along. We're in this huge pivot point in the story of Exodus. Exodus 19 is like the theological marker, like the change. It's where God is basically announcing his intentions. Leah said worship is a response well, God is initiating some conversation here. 
So in the story, God has set his people free, free from serving and worshiping Pharaoh so that they can serve and worship the Lord. He leads them through a desert to a mountain, and he actually wants to reveal himself to them. Let's start in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, on the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they entered the desert of Sinai. And after they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up on the mountain, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and this is what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you need to say to the Israelites. So Moses goes back down and summons the elders and tells them all the words that God has said. And the people respond together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come down to you in a dense cloud so that all the people will hear me speaking to you and will put their trust in you. And the Lord said to Moses, go and consecrate the people or get them spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally ready today and tomorrow, have them wash and be ready on the third day, because on the third day, I will come down on the mountain in the sight of all the people. There's verses in scripture that say that that if we were to look at God, we would die. And here it says that God wants to reveal himself to not just Moses, these, this entire group of people. We need to, we need to kind of sense almost almost a wedding going on here. And the people respond, no, we want to do this. They they sort of respond that way, because if we jump ahead, when God actually comes in the cloud, which you'll see at the end of the chapter, he uses all this language of cloud and thunder and lightning, which is all kinds of descriptions for God's presence, the people get freaked out. In fact, after God starts his his invitation to a covenant relationship, you might know it as the Ten Commandments. They go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We want, we want Moses to speak to us. We, we're too afraid. He says, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Somehow Israel couldn't see and accept what God was trying to show them. And so Moses, it says later that God, Moses goes up on the mountains and stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. Spiritual clue 40 to say something is happening to Moses in the midst of this. Something is dying in him. Something new is being born in him. And he's with God in the cloud, it says in Exodus 24, 18. And he entered the cloud. He went up on the mountain and he stays there 40 days and 40 nights. Lots of cool things happen. But the point I want to get to in the story is jumps to Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses had been gone for a long time, they gathered around Aaron, his brother, their other leader, and said, Aaron, make us gods that will go before us and 
and that we can worship. As for this fellow Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. And they do. They bring all their gold, all their jewelry, and Aaron fashions an animal for them to worship. What happened? Here's a people that have been rescued from Egypt as slaves, and then they go and worship a gold statue. And I think it's because they could not see themselves as anything other than slaves in Egypt. What they failed to do is they failed to change their belief system. They failed to reframe who they were, and then they never really fully experienced the comeback that God had planned for them. All the ones that worshipped the calf ended up dying in the wilderness before they got to the comeback because they couldn't reframe who they were. So this reframing idea comes from this idea that we can change the meaning of a picture just by adjusting the frame. Like, for example, here I have a nice little picture. Now, you might say, oh, it's like, it's two kids walking to school. That's a great, yeah, I totally see it. Yeah, that's, that's not very fun. I don't really like school that much. But, and, and it could be two people walking to school. But, you know, if we were able to change the frame, which I'm not going to do with my hands. It's got to just, voila, there. Now you see, it's not two people walking to school. It's two people that have just gotten done with this amazing mountain trek where they've, they've crossed the peak and they've come out and they're walking down the path and they're happy, they're excited, they've seen this amazing experience in nature and with each other. You change the meaning by changing the frame. Now I'm sure if we were all going to read Deutschman's book, we would all you know, use his little techniques about trying to mentally change the picture. But here's the deal, we don't have to do that. We have a God who does that for us or gives us the picture that we can now see through. We just have to respond to it. And that's what he's doing in this. He's giving the people a new identity. And he starts with this phrase, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and how I brought you to myself. This is an invitation to see themselves differently. And this is not just an invitation for them. I believe this is an invitation for us. That if we could see ourselves differently, then we could walk through our, our setbacks and get to the places of comeback that we need to be that God really, truly wants us at. So let's just take a few minutes to to think about the phrase. Number one, you have seen yourselves in what I did in Egypt. So again, in case you forgot, these people were slaves in Egypt. They could not escape. The Pharaoh, the powerful person, would not let them leave. And they lacked the power to get free. And yet God brought them out. And what they needed to see was that they couldn't, fight against their oppressor and win. And it wouldn't do any good to stay angry at their oppressor. They had to move on from that. In fact, I would say that if, if we need to, if we want to get to our comeback, 
in order to reframe who we are, we have to start with the reality that if God sets people free, then we need to set people free. And the way God tells us to do that is through forgiveness. Now, I know some of you are like, whoa, you don't understand my setback. You don't understand who put me there. I, I can't excuse that. Well, we fail to see that a lack of forgiveness is actually giving the offender power over us. It just keeps us in setback longer. Because forgiveness isn't about excusing the offense. Forgiveness is about releasing us from having to pay back the evil that was done to us. It, it gives the evil over to God, and it lets God deal with that. And God says he's just, and he's righteous, and he's good. So God will take care of that. It doesn't mean we're surrendering justice or surrendering the right to justice. In fact, I think, and the Bible shows, that forgiveness actually guarantees justice. When we give it to God, we're saying, you deal with that. I can't do that. Forgiveness actually frees us to reframe who we are. That means we need to be free of any resentment towards the offender. And this is the hard one. Especially if that offender is you, yourself. Because maybe you're the one who put yourself in setback. You know, it was your unwise decision. And the one you're oppressing is yourself. If only I... No. No, you set yourself free. Corey Ten Boom, who survived the Holocaust, said, forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and finding out you were the prisoner. See, I think throughout this whole story, what God is inviting these people to say and to see is that they're not a prisoner to their past. They're set free for their present and God's future. That, that if we can forgive, we're able to actually close the chapters of the past and live in the present and accept God's future for us. So how have you framed your setback? Is unforgiveness maybe holding you back from stepping to what God has for you? Second piece of this is that God says, I carried you on eagle's wings. Now, the eagle's wings is this picture of power and love. It's this image where, where, where the eagles would take their young out to put them on their back and then slide them off, and they would have to spread their wings. Then they would obviously fall because they'd never tried to fly before, but the, the, the mother or the father, they would swoop down and they would catch them, and they would bring them back up. And they would do it again, and they would do it again until they learned to fly. Amazing power, but amazing love. And God was protecting and providing for them in the wilderness. Through this journey, these people failed to see or just failed to accept that their identity had changed. We, in our meet and greet, we talked about what labels we've had before. In setback, 
you are given a label. It's slapped on you. And we often don't like it, and we want to take it off. And so, because we can't take it off, we just try and hide it, or minimize it, or dismiss it. See, what God's people, I think what God's people failed to see is the reality of their setback was they were slave labor. I mean, literally, they were a workforce. And they had cruel masters who mistreated them. And they, so that means they lived as scared slaves. Now, we don't actually know if they hated being afraid. But here's what we read in the text. That every time these people go out in the wilderness, they don't know how to take care of themselves. And when their supplies run out, they freak out and think they're going to die. That sounds like being scared to me. For us to reframe who we are, it means we have to confront the labels and admit that setback has changed us. So if you have some kind of injury and you can't do this thing anymore, you have to admit that. When I injured my shoulder as a, as a college swimmer, I had to accept and admit that I was no longer a college swimmer. But see, that's where the reframing comes in. Because most of us don't like our labels. I already said that. But we want to then try and, we just got to figure it out. One of those is, for example, if your setback was the breakup of your marriage or a relationship, then you go from in a relationship to single. And you may or may not put it on Facebook, but you might go from married to single. And that means every time you go to the doctor and you have to fill out this stupid health form, you have to check single. And, and it probably sucks. Sorry, my grandma says, don't use that word. But it's a reality. And you have to admit it. it, it maybe it's not marriage. Maybe it's a job loss. And, and so, like it or not, the label that you used to wear was corporate vice president, but now you're a retail manager. So where's your identity? Because some people walk around and they say, I'm a corporate executive who's really working in retail right now. And some people say, I'm a retail manager who used to be a corporate executive. See, it's all in how we frame it. But we don't have to use just positive imaging. We listen to what God says to us. We don't have to blame others. We don't have to get stuck in self-pity. And we don't have to cling to the old labels. If we just cling to the past, we'll never, ever, ever be able to receive God's future for us. The people in the wilderness, I just believe they failed to see the new label God was trying to give them. After he gives this phrase, this proposal, he says, Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And even though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Like God was saying, you were slaves, but now you're royalty. You were people that got oppressed, but now you're actually going to be people that bring the very word and life of God to the rest of the world. And I didn't choose you because you're going to accept my covenant. I didn't choose you because you're going to obey my laws or you're going to worship me. I chose you because you cried out to me. 
And they made a promise to a guy who was nearly dead and his wife who would never be able to have children. And I said I would make them a great nation. We've got to get over ourselves and hear what God is saying to us. These people could not hear this. Someone said it like this. If we can see ourselves in a new light, then we can live in a new life. See, when we're able to to separate ourselves from our circumstance, the fancy word is differentiated. Like we're able to distinguish my identity from what I do or who I hang out with. And if we can reframe who we are, we need to admit that God, or we need to admit that setback has changed us, but we need to separate what happened from who we are. So if you're a note taker, that's number two. Separate what happened from who you are. And finally, God's last phrase is, I brought you to myself. First, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. You got to admit that God is the one who brings us out of setback. And how he carries us on eagle's wings. Like he provides for us. We are more afraid than we like to say. But then he brings us to ourselves. This is language of, of bride and bridegroom going into the marriage chamber. Literally, God is proposing to these people. I want to be in relationship with you. And, and as much as these people wanted to change, as much as they wanted to have this future, they never really could change their belief system. And they never really could reframe who they were. They could never really see themselves as God's possession. Maybe it was because they were slaves in Egypt. Maybe it was because they wanted to do their own thing. But think about it. If you've seen anyone who's married and they don't see themselves as married, then they act single. And that's not a good way to do your marriage. I see some people nodding their heads. It's not going to last, because you can't live a life of singleness as a married person. You have to think of yourself now as someone who is connected to, who is united with, who belongs to, and has to live in respect to that person whose name they now share. So I think what it means for us to reframe who we are, it means we accept God's new identity for us. See, even better than separating our what happened from who we are, better than the old labels or whatever, we can reframe who we are as whose we are. This is what God is doing. He's saying, I am choosing you. I treasure you. You're valuable. Like this, God is a good and caring God who wants and is committed to bringing these people to a better place. Next week, we're going to talk more about how we see God. But for now, let's just realize that the nation of Israel was really never able to do this. 
as much as they were God's chosen people, they could not do and be what God had called them to do and be. But God didn't give up. That's why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to do and be what Israel could not do and be. And it cost him his whole life, his earthly physical existence. He was dead. The creeds, the statements that, that church history tells us, he descended into hell. He did battle with Satan. He overcame sin and Satan and death. And he rose to new life. And the resurrection, friends, changes everything. Because we'll never be able to do and be what we think we need to do and be. We have to let God reframe us. But when we do, then, then we are truly differentiated. Then who God says we are is completely separate to what others think of us or our success or failures. Whatever label you're wearing, let God put a new one on you. Jesus didn't allow himself to be defined by his work or defined by his ministry status or his family status. He, and, and what that meant is that no one could intimidate him with what they said or what they did because he only listened to the Father's approval of him. His goal was never to make people happy. That's a hard one for me. Because Jesus had framed who he was as whose he was. He says in the book of John, if I give honor to myself, that honor's worth nothing. The one who gives me honor is my father. He also says, how can anyone believe, how can, sorry, he says, how can you believe since you accept praise from one another, but do not seek the praise that comes from the one and only God? So in other words, Jesus said he framed his belief system around who he was, whose he was, what God said. And so as a result, even at the end of his life, even as people were killing him, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. He is calling out to his father to forgive these people who are killing him. Don't you think that he wants to call out in the same way to God to say, Father, forgive so-and-so, because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, they don't know how to reframe on their own. They need you to do it. And when we say, God, I can't do it on my own, he instantly, it's the start of a relationship. Are you stuck? You're close. Are you close but stuck? that paralyzed to take that next step, this is the piece, changing who, how we see ourselves, letting God reframe our picture. This is what he does. And it changes the whole story. Because remember, our life is not the whole story. It's just this much of the story. But when we do, because of Jesus' forgiveness, because of his death, because of his resurrection, then this reframing is actually possible. And that means new life is actually possible. And that means that new beginnings are actually possible. What do you need to do? Take a moment and pray. Maybe it's close your eyes so that you're not distracted. Is there somebody you need to forgive?
Is there a label that you need to accept? Separate, but accept. And how does God want you to reframe your circumstance? Reframe your identity. Can you see yourselves as God's? As beloved and treasured? Father, thank you for your proposal. Thank you for your word and and for this truth. And thank you, Jesus, that, that even though these people could not do it on their own, you did what we could not do. Jesus, I believe you continue to do what we couldn't do. And you give us your spirit when we say yes to you. And when we confess our doubt or confess our fear or confess our unbelief, we confess our labels. God, you fill in the gaps. You, you wipe away the wrong. You cover the evil, and you promise justice in the end. So God, would you give us what we need to reframe who we are as whose we are so that we can fully live into your future. In Jesus' name.